As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information on this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. For episode 39, I'm joined by Ken Stringfellow, best known as one of the two frontmen for The Posies. You're right now hearing him singing Solar Sister from their 1993 album, Frosting on the Beater. We'll be discussing The Sound of Clouds from The Posies' most recent release, that's Solid States 2016 then getting into two of the tracks from his 2012 solo album, Danzig in the Moonlit Night. Those are Shit Talkers and Jesus Was an Only Child. But that's not all. Both Ken and his fellow Posey's frontman, John Auer, in 1993 joined the reformed Big Star, band led by Alex Chilton, famous for some seminal albums in the 70s. And in 2005, that group produced an album called In Space. We will discuss Ken's composition from that album, Turn My Back on the Sun close out we'll listen to whatever hell in the 2015 album the record credited to holly and ken which is a sort of willie nelson kind of thing for more information check out kenstringfellow.com all right so i will have played some of solar sister at your suggestion to kick things off so we can talk as an initial topic getting from those early Posey's days to we're going to go right to the current album 2016's Solid States. The song you'd pick from that was The Sound of Clouds. Obviously, I moved from more guitars to more keyboards. That's the the obvious thing. That seems to be just an evolution in what you were spending more time playing. But say more about the stat. I know the band now Posey's is an, is an intermittent thing. It's just one of many projects that you're engaged in that you can get together and do these songs every once in a while. So for instance, why would this song show up on a Posey's album as opposed to going on a solo album? Is it just, just the timing or, or was it more collaborative? Well, I, I think that intention has a lot to do with it. I don't really stockpile songs. When I know I'm heading towards a project, even the knowledge that that's coming influences my choices to some degree and the kind of things that I want to say. And maybe in recent years, there's a little more bleed between like the solo work and the Posies work, just because, for example, the way that we made this Posies album, the writing and recording process was kind of the same. And I did that in my studio and sent tracks to John and he did the same for me. And it's become more like two solo guys working in harmony as opposed to back in the old days when we were a live band that was capturing our live band sound in a studio. But still, I, I think, you know, intention beforehand, that's what art is all about, really. You, you have these effects that you want to make and you have concepts and then you start exploring based on the concepts and then what happens, happens. But those initial concepts influence the choices that you make along the way and they influence 
even the initial steps. So I would never have written that song if I wasn't in the mode of writing for a, a Posey's album. Something else would have happened, I believe, if I was in the mode of thinking, oh, I'm writing for a solo record or another project. Those particular thoughts might not have arrived to assemble themselves the same way. Then it goes into the hopper and John starts to add his stuff and, and then it becomes collaborative. But the song that I send to John is pretty intact you know, okay. in terms of structure. He just adds color. Do you have any introductory words for this song in particular, The Sound of Clouds, what it's about, where it's coming from? The big theme of this Posey's album is mortality. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we lost one of our band members during the making of this album, Darius Manwala, who died completely out of the blue, age 38. It was in May of 2015, and we started working on this record in January, February. So we were still doing some of the writing. Although I will say that this song, I think, may have been written before that. But the specter was there. I mean, you know, we're in that age where, like, parents and we're all getting older and people we know are starting to disappear and we hadn't even had 2016 yet. We hadn't even seen that, that but the year where everybody died. And these thoughts are already on my mind. The end game is on my mind. And that's what this song is describing. How could the end game be beautiful? Yeah. 
you're an XTC fan, right? Mm-hmm. So this strikes me kind of like the later XTC, like the song Rook, that's also about mortality in this way. Mm-hmm. Certainly just quarterly. I mean, that's one of the big differences. I don't know if it's just more obvious when it's a keyboard song. Yeah. I know that some of your earlier guitar stuff was some ninths and crunchy stuff as well, but you get into this chorus and I know you've got these parallel fifths in the vocals and some other funny stuff, but it's also just a lot of major sevenths and ninths floating around. Can you say something about just, is that the way you write now? Chromatic chord progressions are like a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. I love, for some reason, those speak to me. I don't know why, because maybe it's the 12-tone row fan in me knows that if you do a chromatic chord progression, you're going to be able to use every single note in the keyboard at some point in your travels. But between this and the song like Superwise on Danzig in the Moonlight, they have these chromatic passages, and that must be a big thing for me. I think a chromatic passage, because... It doesn't move through the tried and true chord progression zone, allows you to announce that you are heading into uncharted territory, so to speak, even though the concept of chromatic chord progressions has been around, they're there to be used, but people don't use them that much because they are, they sound a little arbitrary, but if used correctly, they can kind of break out of cliche world. You know, I mean, there are plenty of hackneyed chord progressions that Even if they're wonderfully hackneyed chord progressions, you know, like they announce that you're quoting to some degree, you know, you're you're using a trope and that kind of chord progression says, hey, we're moving beyond the world of tropes because I'm talking about a world that none of us understand, which is the world of death. You know, none of us really, even if we've lost loved ones or friends or whatever, that even makes it worse. We understand even less about that world. And so if we're talking about that in this song, that's a good way to announce that, hey, we're going to look at that area that we don't know much about and we don't like to look at that much. And did you find shifting to writing more on keyboard was also tonally freeing in a way because you're not kind of, you know, when I'm writing on guitar, either I'm using the main chords or I'm doing a fairly self-conscious variation of it. Like that, okay, now I'm lifting this finger so it's a ninth rather than a you know a regular chord or adding this one extra thing. Unless you're just working with alternate tunings where you just don't even know what's going to come out <laughs> until you play it. We did that a lot for that very reason over the years. For example, the album Amazing Disgrace has almost no songs in standard tuning. I mean, like they're all over the place. And even on Frosting on the Beater, we had a lot of alternate tunings for precisely that reason. So that you're not like going, okay, I'm lifting this finger. So that's a ninth and this is a major seventh. Like you might end up, you know, Peter Buck always kind of laughed at me saying, okay, you're doing all this work so that you can play C, F, and G again. And I'm like, yes, but I don't know it's C, F, and G. So again, intention has a lot to do with it. Well, didn't he say that himself? Like that's why he shifted to mandolin because so he wouldn't know what he was doing so much. (laughs) I remember hearing an interview with him about that. Well, that doesn't surprise me, but he was happy to point out that I was going through a lot of trouble for perhaps diminishing returns, but he liked the results. He wasn't dissing my songwriting by any means. Especially if you're playing it with a lot of distortion, like the subtleties of the voicing are not even going to come through necessarily. Well, yeah, then you're really lost. It's funny, you know, I was just, I'm potentially working with this band as a producer and they sent me their demos. It's a young band. So these guys are like 21, whatever. And he said, well, you know, I play a lot of jazz chords and I listened to the demo and I was like, how would I know that? There's like, you know, dinosaur junior levels of distortion. Like you could be playing root fifth or you could be playing like 
every flatted everything and it would be exactly the same. I mean, I can't, it's like you do realize that some of your efforts here are a little bit masked by the amount of distortion you use. And he's like, but again, there's intention in there. Intention is all in art, right? And are you thinking in terms of even chords? Or are you thinking like the intro here? I mean, the, the main part seems obviously riff based rather than I came up with a little five note progression here on the piano that I'm repeating rather than this is the chord that I'm playing. Or do you still think in terms of chords when you're doing that kind of riff? I wasn't thinking in terms of chords. Of course, I'd turn it all off and just start putting my hands down. And we were talking a little bit earlier about the switch from guitar to piano. Piano is my first instrument. I mean, it's the first thing I played in bands, some of the baby bands that I had when I was in junior high, for example. But I moved over to guitar because guitar's cool and easier to carry. Well, yeah, in 1987, what exactly horrible keyboard sounds are going to be available to you that's going to fit with your music? And we're not even talking about 1987. We're talking about like 1981. You know, there's like the Krumar orchestrator and things like this, but nothing that weighed less than 200 pounds. That was the thing. So, you know, like I couldn't go to a jam session. We had to do our rehearsals at the school because the school had like some kind of wacky, like vintage keyboard. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, guitars, you can travel. You can throw that over your shoulder and off you go. Especially after my years playing with R.E.M., where I was primarily playing keyboards. I mean, that's what they needed me the most for. Sometimes I jumped to guitar if somebody else was... We all switched instruments a lot. I saw that tour, 1999, I believe, the, the first one you were on. Yeah, the Up tour. We all switched around, but what they, the skill that they needed the most represented because they had it the least among themselves was a certain kind of keyboard playing. I mean, Mike Mills is a great piano player, but synth playing is a different animal. And so they needed someone who could kind of work like synths and samplers and do all that and make it sound like R.E.M. instead of like OMD, OMD R.E.M., which could be cool, actually. But anyway, so my chops went way up on those tours, you know, doing that for 10 years. And, and I just found myself more interested in the keyboard possibilities and the layout of the keyboard and just the feel of it, the velocity attack of a keyboard and the result that you get. You know, at a certain point, you hit a guitar as hard as you want, and it kind of gets to a certain point and stops because, you know, the, the amplifier itself is a natural compressor. It, your dynamic range on the guitar is a little less startling in practice, I think, than your dynamic range on the keyboard. I mean, on a, on a beautiful piano, I can pound the crap out of that thing and it gets pretty loud or I can play like very delicate, like little tiny things. And I think it has a wider dynamic range. It is, of course, called a pianoforte in its full name for that very reason. Let's turn to some of the specifics of, so are you through playing just the piano part or are you, is any of it, I put down the riff once and then I copy it 10 times just to... You know, I actually play the whole song. Okay. You know, I keep working at it until I've got an arrangement that I like. And of course I'm generally playing it into MIDI so I can quantitize it. So I wanted to ask then about these percussion little bits. So you got some really cool synth percussion stuff on here. This this tuned stuff that's near the beginning that you know, has this sort of tribal feel, but obviously, you know, is electronic, I, right. I assume. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that I love. All that I play by hand. I use a program called Transfuser, which is just essentially a drum sampler with different possibilities where you can create patterns or you can load up some pads with sounds and, and play a MIDI keyboard or MIDI pads or whatever. It's quite flexible for input and output in terms of like it has inboard sounds. You can import any sounds that you want from whatever library that you want. And then the way that you can get MIDI in can come in a couple different ways or you can make slice up patterns or do whatever you want. There's all kinds of things you can do in Transfuser. And what I like to do is 
jam through with my fingers and come up with a best of and then drop those in where I like them, you know, so that it's never quite the same twice. I mean, I might, I don't really do a lot of copy and pasting. I just, I might play something similarly and use that more than once. But I, if I like it, I might try and just play it again. And, you know, you can do some funny things through quantization that you didn't really play it that way, and it, but you can make it more robotic or you can make it faster or whatever. All those kind of things can happen. But they're all played by hand originally pretty much. It's pretty rare unless it's something really, really stupid that I program it. I know there's a certain school of songwriting in, in this particular age that we live in now that's like loop-based and you layer different loops and, and you drop things out or whatever and the Ableton way of writing songs and it, and it makes legit pieces of music that I love. I just don't really work that way. I think of things with a lot more dynamics and a lot more dropping out and a lot more changes more rapidly than a pattern that you get used to. That's probably, you know, one of the reasons I'm super unpopular. But I like things to change much more rapidly and much more often. The other little instruments that you picked here, you've got, what is this very high, almost like a triangle that's entering in the chorus that's playing the main, it's like you were trying to fill up the hi-hat spot, but it's very high. Well, there's treated piano that's pretty cool. And that was done at Frankie, our drummer's studio in, in LA. You know, we took a grand piano and basically took gaffer tape or whatever and, and made a little loop of gaffer over each string that we were going to use so that the string was like kind of constricted so that when you hit it, it, it didn't have a lot of sustain or resonance. That's kind of the jam on that. Like ding, 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 ding. Well, okay, so I feel less silly now asking then the other sound that's at the, the courses that's at the end of some of the phrases, like on uh, equal and traces. It sounds like you're doing the, I have an amp with spring reverb in it and I'm dropping it two inches and it's making this, like, is that what that sound is? That's an electronic sound that okay. I just, I made. I think I took some drum sample and just started twisting it and bending it and running it through stuff and, and dropped that in. But that's, and with delay and stuff like that. But that's a non-organic sound. Ah, well, there must be some reason of physics why that would sound like that in terms of what what the reverb is actually doing in an amp when you throw it around like that. Well, yeah, the, the spring is hitting really hard and overloading it. Basically, I mean, the overload is kind of what we hear. Yep. And then the bass is also... Synth bass is not real bass, or is it real bass? There's two things. I mean, there is a kind of fat, low synth bass that's kind of in a lot of different parts of the song. But there's also parts where I'm playing like a, a Fender 6. Just at the end where the real drums come in? Is that... Oh, okay, the articulated places. The, the, all those syncopated lines are like Fender 6. All right, well, so that answers part of my question. I mean, it sounds like once you enter this electronic realm... I can see, especially if you're working remotely with somebody, it seems like, oh, I can just keep everything in the electronic realm. And, you know, perhaps if we share the same software, I can send that thing overseas and let the other guy even mess around with the electronic <laughs> settings. How were you communicating with John about this? What did John actually add to this? John added his vocals and mm -hmm. some guitar things. So the guitars, like in around three minutes in, you get with the bridge come the I long for completion. You get this giant cave noise. Is that guitar feedback? Is that where what guitar you're talking about, or is that something else? Well, there, there's that, but actually in that section, a lot of that is human voice mm. amplified. 
and backwards. We made a backwards mix of that section. And I did like kind of operatic vocals backwards, you know, singing through an amp with amp reverb. And so it has a little bit of a guitar like timbre, but it's going through an amp, but it's actually me. But he did add guitar to it. I long for The electronic programming in general on this album is kind of my domain. And I think it's my biggest contribution in a way because it's the thing that sets this album apart from our, the rest of our work the most, I think. John, by his own admission, is not, I have to take a step back here because when I was making music with John before the Posies and we had many, many different experimental bands and different things, John was an incredible drum machine programmer. Ah. We're talking about high school, so mid-80s. So with that particular box. Yeah, so step programming, you know, uh, he was pretty incredible. In this modern world, which I believe is arguably easier to program because you can sort of see it all laid out and you can look ahead at, at what you've done, etc. And you can copy-paste all the things, all the cheating we can do. I would think that that would be a great world for someone with that experience to explore, but it's less interesting for John, I think, for some reason. I'll admit I had the parallel thing that I had in the 1987, a little drum machine that I loved to program, and now I still actually haven't made the jump to being competent to programming drums. I still will just record stuff the regular way. And tapping with your fingers. I mean, of course I still do it. So even on songs that are really John's domain, like a song like The Definition on that album, Mm -hmm. Like all of the stuff that's doing the trickiest syncopated polyrhythmic stuff, that's all my programming. That's kind of a first for us, and I think it's a hallmark of this album. Well, let's throw our second song into the mix. We can still Mm -hmm. bring this back up. So from Danzig in the Moonlit Night, your last full soul (laughs) album, 2012, the one that I had picked, Shit Talkers. Uh Uh-huh. Actually, more because I wanted something that would have some of the sense of the older guitar-based posy stuff, but with your own, the way that you've expanded on that, just in that it has, this is not really a guitar-based song. The keyboards are just as prominent, the piano, as the guitar, but it still, it has that big starry sort of feel, particularly in the, what are you calling the A section? Is that the verse or the chorus? With the riff? Da, 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 da. I guess that's the chorus. That's the chorus. And, and it's funny because this song was written entirely on the piano. I could even, in fact, <laughs> have you ever, do you know this guy named Minky Starshine from Providence? I, I worked on a bunch of his records and I was mixing his record at Dave Minahan's studio in Boston and I was alone. So sometimes I'd take a break and there's a piano in there and I pumped out this riff, which is in 5 4. Yeah, But the way that Yost Kroon, the drummer on the album, plays, he plays it really straight ahead. So he plays this bam, 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 yes, bam, 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 thing, bam, yeah. bam, 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 but it's not four on the floor, it's five on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but he plays that, and it's brilliant because you, you just stop thinking about the fact this song's in five for the chorus, and then the verse is, is a six, eight or whatever. Do you have any thematic introduction before we get too into the details here? A thematic introduction is just that it's about liars. Liars and the lying lies that they lie. Isn't that the Al Franken book? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yes. Oh, 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 oh,
that sign It was an overnight wait Kids in the clubs won't even touch this stuff It's a hard sell Act not, heaven act not Stay a hand cause I can't recall Telling me how I feel the hurt It was so real A bad suit won't protect me from you boys You should have come to me first this town All you shit talkers Unlicensed dog walkers With our taxidermy hog stalkers You can take it all up the Wabash And put it with a Pope Don't even Do it cause you're bored Shit talkers Have you somewhere else Do what I always did Keeping the streets safe From American kids Back when you started There was envy all around You and your set of sides Became so I was into you cause you were so understudied But take it all back cause I don't want your blood money You were into me for the last time Oh but since it never was a good game Sooner or later you flicker in the eyes of fame Emulation's absolute Yeah, so narratively, I had a hard time, and I realized we haven't talked about the lyrics for The Sound of Clouds at all either, but we can circle back. Mm, yes. It almost reminds me of Queen here, that you've got this sort of operatic story, Yeah, you know, especially in the, in the verses, then you kind of are opening up. I wrote Joe Cocker in parentheses. Not that you're doing a Joe Cocker voice, but it has, I'm not sure what is the model for that kind of, I'm very overwrought singing, you know, that, just letting it rip there. And just well, it's called just letting it rip. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> no, we have to have technical names for everything. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely pairing it. Off. You know, the thing is, this song is it's about 
people who betray you and, and all the things that might go into that. And the story of this particular song was someone that I knew started feeding me a story about friends of mine saying that these people were saying bad things about me. And I felt this betrayal from this. And then it turns out that the first person was actually lying. And so then there was another betrayal. They'd actually been trying to turn me against friends of mine. You know, all the twisted things that people do for reasons we don't always really comprehend. So these kind of things were weighing heavy in my mind because our words really affect you. I mean, you know, this person told me a story about people I knew that people I knew were were not really who I thought they were. And that affected me greatly. And it was all a falsehood. So it's incredible that I was so affected by a lie. And of course, we can extrapolate that into the present age and all the things that we read all the time now, you know, there's not a 48 minutes that go by when you're, if you're reading Facebook or your favorite news outlet or listening to your favorite radio personality, or whatever, wherever you turn at this point in the social world of 2017, you're being told something about your beliefs or the beliefs of other people around you. And it's pretty much 99% bullshit. And yet it will get you riled up and it will get you upset. I still get upset by things that I read in my friends' Facebook feeds or on the Huffington Post or whatever. And I realize, whoa, 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 wait a second. This is all crap. These are just words. And I'm like living my life and my emotional life because of words. Well, and it seems maybe you're pointing at some kind of erosion of the distinction between the public and the private that used to be, you know, of course, this issue of gossip and, you know, somebody telling you something that somebody, you know, that's as old as the hills. And then being aware of the public sphere and, well, in particular, what advertisers or anybody in the media, you know, is taking on the role of advertiser because they're trying to sell you something, even just being sensationalist about a story, that's another kind of bullshit. But those seem like different kinds of bullshit. And it seems like you're saying that not only is there a parallel between them, but that since you're getting more and more of your personal stuff off of Facebook or something, I don't know, is there more of overlap between those things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we live more and more isolated. I mean, given the chance for me to when I think about doing something social at this point, it's like, oh, I'm going to pull over and sit down somewhere and grab the local Wi-Fi and, and get on Facebook and talk to my friends. I'd probably be more likely to do that than go somewhere and meet people, especially like being where I live. I live in this small town in France and I don't really you know, have a ton of friends here. My friends are distributed throughout the world, but I don't even think that's a peculiar situation to mm -hmm. me. I think even people who live in Manhattan when they're out with people might actually be more interested in pulling out their phone and talking to someone else than the person they're with. So, I mean, I think we are living in ever narrower and narrower social channels, basically a channel of one that's you. And once that happens, then everything we get is basically some form of text-based or it's word-based. You're not really in a reality with anyone else. You're in a reality that's created for you. I mean, this is where it's all going, of course. And people love this. They love being in this reality created for them because you can get so much positive feedback from people, quote unquote, around you who are just virtual as far as you care because you're looking at them on your phone. I'm going to set my Facebook to like your post after I die. Just so. <laughs> yes. There's so many wonderful things about the way that we can communicate now and the ease of communication. But people, it's so seamless. There's a philosophical side to it, you know, that perhaps you might want to take a day and think about what you do, you know, what you're actually saying and what you're actually reacting to. I think the main thing is for me that I need to constantly remind myself that the world is looking to clickbait me. 
even my friends, everything is looking to clickbait me in terms of like rousing my emotions about something. And I should remember who I am and that my emotions shouldn't just be so easy to manipulate. Because Facebook is yours, it's your Facebook page, it's your Facebook account, you start to think that that's your personal domain, but actually you're you're just parking a window on, on a corporate domain. It's not yours. You know, you don't really own your Facebook profile, mm -hmm. etc. So what's really yours is your perspective and your ability to step back from it all. And, th and that's extremely easy to forget. I know that this year is a particularly frustrating year for everybody. I don't care what end of the political spectrum you're on. You're not going to be happy with how things go because either you're going to be on one side or the other and people are going to be reminding you every day that your side is incomplete. And the goal right now, I think, is to make a complete world in your little bubble and things are going to interrupt that and it's going to be very unsatisfying if you're heavily invested with that bubble. If you have a healthy level of skepticism, then the bubble is meaningless and other people's opinions won't rattle your cage. So let's see if we can connect this back to the song. Shit Talkers is, of course, I could have written that tomorrow you know well, about just just so happening. in terms of the specifics there's like a lot of mm. drug imagery kids in the clubs won't touch this stuff it's a hard sell it's not about drugs keeping the streets safe from american kids where'd this metaphor come into that i mean it sounds like a drug metaphor but it, it's just to say that because drugs are like this powerful tool for altering reality so are words words are the most powerful tool for altering reality and that's what i'm saying about you know kids in the clubs won't even touch this stuff i mean like i'm saying that the manipulation through just the things you say is an even more powerful substance mind altering and reality altering substance than a drug which wears off whereas words you know you might not ever get over it something that someone says i have things in my head that i've been put down or, or manipulated and you know I, I have like ptsd from it and it's probably from 15 20 years ago whereas drug trips that i've been on and even acid or whatever i'm kind of over it i mean i don't have flashbacks or anything like that and then you know i'll be somewhere else doing what i always did keeping the streets safe from american kids it's an easy target but like i live in europe and sometimes when i see the hawaiian shirts in the champs elysees I eavesdrop just to feel like, oh, God, you know, like to confirm my suspicions, you know, that you have become French, that people can travel to a place. And instead of having just an experience, they're having an experience based on their preconceived notions. Once again, preconceived notions are probably dictated by these things we call words, things that they've just heard about. And then they bring those preconceived notions and they start perpetuating them. They, you make a comment. I don't know if you ever eavesdrop on people at bars or restaurants, but it's a quick way to becoming a misanthrope, you know, really <laughs> fast because you, you see the poor quality of communication when you eavesdrop. You listen to a conversation and you see the places where the ball is like hitting the net and the person is like, not even aware that he has something's been served his way and blah, 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 blah. They just, you listen to two people and they're so clueless. They offer up one cliche and then the other person says, oh, here's a cliche to answer your cliche. And you go like, I want to kill these people. I really do. We need to stop the human race now. This kind of thing. It's all about the progress. This song is about the progress of thought that can be quickly arrested simply by words and how insane that is. And um, can we say a little about the connection between the technique mm -hmm. of the lyrics here 
where they're just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And our first song, Sound of Clouds, where it's much more contemplative. I could write these down. You didn't send me these, but I was able to write them down just while playing it through once because they're slow enough that I could type that fast. But besides that obvious point, sort of what's the difference? We've got gods and this is just to jump near the end of the first song here. All of gods and myths leaving us half convinced to believe in atheist as we long for completion. I long for completion. So this is sort of the climax of the song. Say a little more about where that is coming from and how these different approaches to lyrics is it basically all the same? You're out walking the dog and you come up with these things? Or how, <laughs> what's your actual technique? I don't know if I have a technique. You know, I just try and empty my brain and, and see what comes along and what needs to be said. But, I, you know, with Shit Talkers, I had more of an agenda because it was a recent hurt. So, mm-hmm. but with Sound of Clouds, once again, we're talking about exploring a space that I don't know much about, which is what happens when we die and why do we die and why is it important that we are alive? What's all that about and what's it for? And I think in taking that subject in, it's a more cautious exploration because I want to be thorough with my examinations. Whereas with shit talkers, you know, I have, I have an agenda. I was hurt. And so I know what I, I know what this is about and it's about words. So there should be a lot of words too. I'm combating words with words just to illustrate their effective use as weaponry. Sure. So it's Sound of Clouds is more traditionally poetic. You're trying to feel out these things. Wind song, take my flesh away. Just the sound of clouds yes. to fill my empty skull. Oh, that sounds like Vincent Price when you do it, um, which would, would be amazing. <laughs> a rot and the corpses. Also, like the, the area beyond life that we think about is more sparse. It's more, we think of death as a kind of emptiness, the absence of life. And so in reality, all these souls have gone, if they've gone somewhere, it should be a pretty fucking crowded place because (laughs) there's all these people who used to be alive and there's billions of them all the time and they're all dying all the time. So 40,000 men and women every day, there should be millions and billions of souls just dumped into this, you know, place. But when we picture death, we think of it as emptiness. We think of it as the absence of life and therefore it should be like space. It should be the space between stars. It should be like nothingness. And so this song has a lot of space in it, Sound of Clouds. But again, to contrast with Shit Talkers, which is very much about earthly life in the here and now and the way we interact with people, it's more about the crowded, frantic planet full of different impulses and different agendas all like crowded together. Just looking at a couple lines from that, from Shit Talkers, you and your sedative size became so acquainted. What is that? What is that a specific thing about the situation and the person... Yes, for sure. But the person who was basically trying to tell me that my friends were speaking badly about me was, in fact, the source of all lies. I mean, this person was telling a falsehood about my friends and, and they delivered it in such a way that it was very believable and, and I became susceptible to their lies. The exclusivity of, of news is, is one, I've got the secret. You know, that's a kind of seduction. So they wanted to get power over me and control over me to some degree by pretending to have a commodity that only they could really deliver. They knew the truth. And when you get into the second verse or the second time, we're sort of exploding with with feeling here. Is there literal meaning to to some of the lines here or is it just now we're going to try to get as over the top as possible? I mean, all you shit talkers and unlicensed dog walkers, ribeye to taxidermy hog stalkers, 
then you proceed with insults. But what yes. ribeye taxidermy hog stalkers? Is this just an exercise in cool wordplay with a rhyme that fits the emotion there, or is there something? It just came out. I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, it's not a calculated like, oh, I'm going to be so clever here. But it was more just people who are just wastes of time in a way. You know, I mean, like the phrase is as absurd because these people that I'm thinking of whose currency is manipulation, they've invented a job for themselves that shouldn't really exist. It doesn't advance anything for anybody. This person was providing me a service that wasn't a service. I mean, they're providing me with information that wasn't true. So these fictional jobs, whatever a ribeye taxidermy hog stalker is, is just a ridiculous profession. So what is it to be understudied in this context? I was into you because you were so understudied. It's okay if there's no literal answer. It's fine. (laughs) It's more of an impression. So like, what was I saying with that? That more that they were like an underdog, I guess, you know, more Mm -hmm. that they were coming out as if like they were like kind of, well, I'm just, you know, happen to be caught in the crossfire of this relationship of yours with these friends and I'm here to help you. In reality, they are actually a manipulator and they played themselves off as a more innocent character. So we haven't really addressed how the Posey's albums tend to have at least a uniform sound throughout the given album and they gesture in different directions. They're not, uh, you know, every song sounds the same quite, but it's not the sort of eclecticism that you have on several of your solo albums where it's really just, yeah. it almost sounds like on, on Danzig and the one before that, that every song was its own little project. And this is now a country song. So the Jesus was an old child song. The opening song, the original one you had suggested that we do on this is almost like one of those uh, Mercury Rev songs that you sang on this Disney like <laughs> string laced, fairly overwhelming arrangement that is pretty damn cool. So I want to include something like that here. I know we've got, you know, some computer based Mm. heavy arrangement stuff in Sound of Clouds, but this is a specifically different aesthetic. In fact, this is on the same album as Shit Talkers. And, you know, these aren't even the farther reaches of the styles on that. It's really all over the place. Say a little about where this came from, how the song was put together. You've got two distinct sections. You've got the Disney part, and then you've got the, sorry, the first word that comes to mind is Munsters, because <laughs> just the, the end. You've got a very spooky part when the drums actually come in, and then especially as it dissolves into this instrumental. The whole song, both of those distinct sections of it all come from one jam. And it's distinct from a lot of the rest of the album because most of Danzig in the Moonlight was recorded with a certain group of musicians at a certain studio, the studio ICP in Brussels, fantastic place with a a group of friends of mine, Dutch musicians who I've worked with on a lot of different things. But Jesus Was an Only Child was done in LA at the studio of Frankie, who's now the Posey's drummer. I was thinking that was probably him playing drums this. Okay. But actually, at this time, in the studio and in his musical project, had a partner, Jay, and they are both playing drums. <laughs> and that was kind of one of their little trademarks, is that they could do these double drum things so they could make these incredible math rock beats that one person couldn't <laughs> play. There's too many syncopations and, and too many fast things happening. So they could play off of each other in these amazing ways. And so that's kind of part of what's happening especially in the more garagey part of the song. I'd already tracked most of the album in Brussels, and then I had like bits and bobs to do to kind of complete the songs that I'd started. Some of them were almost like Shit Talkers was when I left Brussels, it was totally done. But some of the other songs needed a few overdubs here and there. 
And when I went to Frankie's studio to do some stuff, I said, hey, well, let's try also just jamming and recording and see what comes out of it just for kicks. And we did this piece and, and Frankie edited into something manageable. I mean, sure, there was like 10 minutes of jamming, <laughs> but all these little pieces were in there. He just organized it into something more comprehensible and more orderly. And then I had this great piece of music to listen to for a while. And when we were coming around to mix the album, because I'd, I'd also asked him to mix it, I came back to LA and I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I still haven't really written the, the words for the jam song. I don't really know. And I said, I have got a couple ideas. So we'd work on other songs mixing during the day. And then I spent the night at the studio and slept on the couch. But he set me up with a microphone and a channel, and I just kept working at it. So the cool thing about the vocal of Jesus Was an Only Child, both sections, the, the rockin' section, the whatever kind of Bowie-like section, and then the more dreamy mm -hmm. Disney meets Mercury Rev meets Wilco, whatever section at the beginning, it's all done together vocally. But it was, I finally arrived at the text and the melody and the vibe at like, you know, 3.30 in the morning. So that stretchy, scratchy sound in my voice is totally real. I mean, there's no effects, but it's a really neat sound. I mean, you, you can hear my voice is a little bit broken. And I'm very conscious of the fact that for most of my life, I've had this, you know, squeaky clean kind of vocal sound. So what it takes for me to get a tone with a little bit more character rather than this pure trumpet thing that's always coming out of me. You know, it, it takes some doing unless I want to manipulate it with plugins, but that's not really the way I want to go. So that's just pure, like it's in the middle of the night and I finally got the idea for the whole lyric. It's daybreak. Close enough for counting In seven days you won't remember this It's come downs with overloaded endings Beats of air that never left your lips Subtext of summer safety memories A friendly wave from every passing ship I grew up as just another capsule in life's slow re-entry burning up suburban atmosphere It's business Extinctions Yes Everybody's dream To walk through The fire Cause Jesus Was an only child Like me Yeah. 
Yes, I was excited to hear, you know, knowing you're you're a big star fan and mm-hmm. the, the big star stuff that is associated, not obviously not only a fan, a former member, but that the part of the sound that is associated with you, it would be the the clean first two albums sound. But here we actually get, unlike your cover of Take Care, one of the third album songs, which is still a very clean vocal performance, you know, this has the late night desperation that you actually hear on some of those original Alex Chilton, Holocaust, and other things like that from this little period. Yeah, and it's, and it's drug-free, strangely <laughs> enough. I'm just going to say, he was just staying up late. That's all that was yeah, going on. All, yeah, <laughs> I, actually there was, yeah, I wasn't chemically aided in my late night. Otherwise, it, the song would have been a little more up-tempo. It would not have had the, the Disney feel either. Yeah. The most impressive thing about the arrangement here, and this also calls for, so you've got elements on, a, on both the previous two songs that we talked about, where you create this wall of sound. You know, you've got your, your forefront things. You've got your piano, you've got your vocal, and then you've got this sort of wall of stuff in the back, especially on Shit Talkers. It was in where the chorus repeats at the end. Yeah. And there's this giant, that sound, was that again, like, a bunch of vocals put backwards or something? How did you, like, the swirling vortex of synths or voices or something? In the eyes of fame Emulations absolute You can't say what you said and give up The cutest eyes Defamations on shit talkers, I think there's less stuff on there than you might think. I think it's some delay that's on like one one guitar. Okay, so it's really just the one beefy guitar that's filling that space. That's all that's required there. Pretty much, it's not a really. You know, there's a couple extra vocal parts that come in towards the end where I'm, you know, I reprise the stuff I do in the intro. But I think unlike most of the songs on that album, there's not a million layers of stuff. Believe it or not. Well, talk so talk about in Jesus. There's definitely the million layers of stuff with the drum take for the Disney part. I'm playing piano live, and I think Jay is also playing piano live. So I think there's two pianos being played at once, and 
I added guitar at a certain point. And then when we crossed to the rock and glam part where they have two drum sets going, I think I played synth bass on the live take. So the Munsters part, the solo at the end, was that that was part of the live take? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's all live. What's neat about that riff, you know, this kind of pseudo Russian riff or whatever, that was totally impromptu. And I love stuff like that, that it's a fairly complex musical phrase, but it's also orderly. And orderly is not the kind of stuff we think of that comes from improvisation, you know. Yeah, I could picture that with like a baritone sax or something. It sort of seems like one of those Van Graaff generator instrumental yeah. sections there. Uh, I like that, yeah. At the end. <laughs> you said there was a lot to express about the lyrics of this. I don't want to go line by line, but give us an overview at least. The Disney section is purely about the innocence and kind of loneliness of my youth. I talk about burning up in a suburban atmosphere and my childhood growing up in Lake Forest, Illinois and Darien, Connecticut. And it was a little bit of a cultural vacuum. And I knew that I was, I had a different view on things, but didn't really have anywhere to go with it. But I was also very safe, you know, it was a very safe upbringing. But I, I guess it's very uncorrupted, but also very isolated. That's the dichotomy that I'm illustrating there. And then in part two, this character comes out that is completely of the world. And it's not me. It's more just a kind of corrupt figure of some kind. The sleaziness of wealth and what it can bring, I suppose, is what's being referenced at that point. So what's the thematic connection between these two things? Is this, or is there any? <laughs> I think it's that sleazy world existed the whole time. And that the isolation I felt in my innocent childhood world, it wasn't great to be isolated and lonely, but then moving out into the world and finding out how corrupt it is, isn't great either. I, I think it's just to show that there's no paradise. Everything has its cost is probably the general theme, both spiritually and materially. So you came up with these after the jam was down, or were these sort of pre-existent things that you adapted to this? Months later, that's what the music inspired in me. Okay. And so the strings and all that stuff, that would be at the same time as the lyrics? Or? I think the strings are actually like Mellotron. Actual Mellotron. I'm sure it's a sample. Okay, I, okay. I, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's Frankie who put that on there. All right. So that's interesting because I had been seeing this and some of the other ones off this album as more what you're describing Sound of Clouds as being as you locked away doing computer stuff and sort of coming up with this elaborate imaginary <laughs> soundscape sort of thing. But no, it started with the jam and involved Frankie doing big chunks of this orchestration and just was not that at all. It was not you in your personal excess. This Actually, Dancing in the Moonlight is very much tracked live with real musicians throughout, I mean, the whole record. Is that the same guys that were doing the disciplines with you or some of those? No, different okay. people. The disciplines are, are band I had was three guys from Norway and the house band on most of Danzig in the Moonlight are Jos Krohn, J.B. Myers and Pim Kops, who are three Dutch musicians, all masters of their craft. But, you know, live takes. I mean, there's a song on the album called History Buffs. That's a kind of epic piano song, but it does have drums and bass and stuff like that. And it's like a live take with a live vocal. It sounds pretty constructed in a way because the way I write is kind of complicated. I like elaborate things, but the recording is pretty organic in general. Well, yeah, like I was wondering, there was a point on Shit Talkers when the second verse comes in. I got news for this town and I was like, how long? You've got a pause before the piano hit yeah. and then after that before it comes in. That's not 
like you just programmed it in. Like I couldn't figure out exactly how long it was. It, it seemed obvious that you were there with a band yeah, and you were just doing it when it felt right. Exactly. It's all by feel. There's no click track or anything like that. And actually, I don't even think I could see Yoast the way that ICP is set up. I think he was, you know, like in a booth, so kind of out of sight. So we did it by luck. Well, actually, he's just very good. He's a really, really good drummer. So so you didn't have to work up, have rehearsals with these guys and work up some band chemistry. They were more second take. That's good. First take. They're first take guys. Yeah, because like these guys are like, you know, like real wrecking crew dudes. You know, I mean, Yost, the drummer on Dancing in the Moonlight, plays with a million different things and in a very popular jazz big band. And he's played in a hard rock band. Every, he's done, he can do anything. Pim Cops, the keyboard player plays in a band called De Dyke, which are, they're kind of like the E Street band of Holland in a way. They're like, everybody knows the band. Everybody loves the band. They've been around forever. They're an awesome band. Kind of like if the E Street band was fronted by Leonard Cohen instead of the boss. There's like a real poet at the front of De Dyke, which is a pretty interesting concept. And then JB, you know, my friend from way back when, you know, he plays with everybody, produces everybody. I mean, he's, he's like, I mean, all these guys, they're people I don't have to say anything to when we're tracking, they're already getting the concept without me going, well, I'm kind of looking for this Elvis Costello. They're just, you play in the song and the parts come out that you would have told them to do if you had to, but they can just intuit that in advance. They're like that. So when we did uh, Danzig in the Moonlight, actually, ICP is, you know, it's a top of the line studio. It's pretty expensive. And was there a record company funding this at the time or was this... No, it's just JB and I. So what we did is pretty brilliant, though, because we knew we could work fast and we knew these guys could work fast. We cut two records at once, a solo record for JB and this Danzig in the Moonlight for me. And we cut them in alternating songs. So one song of mine, one song of JB's. So what is the parallel album that I should look up? How is it credited? What's the name of it? Uh, It's JB Myers and The Secret Year. But what's interesting is I think they don't sound anything alike. And that's a testimony to these musicians and that they could create a completely different sonic world for whatever song we're working on next. You know, if the JB song, you know, like it doesn't sound like Dancing in the Moonlight Part 2. So I think that's a really cool thing. That album, JB's album has its own feel or whatever, even sonically because, you know, different mixers, you know, because I, JB mixed his own album I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. And Frankie mixed my album. That, that imparted a whole different sonic layer, too. So they became even more different. But recorded not just back to back, but like intermingled with very different albums. I wanted to make sure we got enough of those, you know, at least a small percentage of the types of songs you write out yeah. with those three examples. But we can't not talk about Big Star. In particular, talking about this In Space album, yeah. which is something that I have not heard that much talk about the songs on it other than to what extent it sounds like a classic big star album or i remember talking to a guy in a record store that was a you know one of the sort of prototypical snobby record clerks that just you know was raving about big star but then kind of wanted to pretend that this didn't happen because like uh-huh. it, it doesn't sound like because it sounds more like an alex chilton album with i don't know so there's <laughs> talk a little about the the project as a whole i know that you know that you did one song per day and a lot of it sounds you know like the whole side b could be Alex Chilton's Man Called Destruction. Like, it seems very continuous with the kind of stuff that he was working on at the time, but is that accurate? (laughs) The neural structure of Alex Chilton in the 1970s had been completely obliterated Mm -hmm. by the mid-2000s. I mean, not only by the fact that he'd come through a period of drug abuse and alcoholism that surely you you will emerge from that tunnel a different person, 
and maturity, just the passing of years. But I think everybody is pretty aware that Alex did everything he could to obliterate the big star. The, for him, the big star was his like biggest mistake. It was his biggest error in judgment. You know, he <laughs> always was tell us like, oh, that, you know, that sophomoric drivel that I was writing at that time, you know, is just embarrassing. I can't believe that. Why are people like listening to these records? Like this is my worst, like bad poetry, like laid out for everyone to hear. He was mortified, you know, and we all, I mean, anyone who's listened to the records would be like, relax. These records are as good as the Beatles. I mean, just shut the fuck up. I think the past for him had, was complicated by a number of things. I can tell you many, many stories. For example, you know, that Alex had a kid back then and he was married and had a kid at a certain point around that time. And it's not super well known, but it, it's there in the books and whatnot. And I remember playing in the 90s at Tramps in New York City and this young man, you know, came backstage and we soon realized it was Alex's son. And Alex whatever he was doing, you know, like opening a Heineken or, or tuning his guitar. I was like, oh, hey, you know, and just like didn't even and like walked out or whatever. He didn't give one word to this kid. I, I think everything about the period post box tops up until he got really out of drinking. 85, something so like that. All of that for him is kind of like, you know what? Too much to deal with. I'm just putting that away. And Big Star is wrapped up in that, especially the fact that it wasn't commercially successful. He just felt like, well, that was just, he said, of course it wasn't. It was his crap music. It had to be. Otherwise, it would have been successful. Something along these lines. I mean, he's a bit inscrutable, you know, right? You know, he was a bit hard to read, but that was the impression that he gave. I'd been following his solo stuff after that and got a thing for you. Like mm -hmm. some really good songs, original songs, even though he said, oh, I'm not really a songwriter. And he did, you know, a lot of covers, some of which were very entertaining as well. So the first track on this, Donnie, like that is worth the price oh. of admission alone. That like actually yeah. is the synthesis of what he was doing in his original solo stuff around that time with Maybe it's just you guys and you know, applying those production elements that it actually sounded like a big star song. And then, of course, the songs that Jody sings, like those could have come out in 1974. Like, Yeah, Jody, I think, was definitely more trying to evoke the spirit. And, and I think he's just that way. So I know you were, you were doing these one song a day and you said this was, well, it's an obvious Beach Boys pastiche. Yes. That was sort of written on order. But what do you mean? Why, why would he want and how would he request a Beach Boys song on order from you for this project. He did a few Beach Boys songs in his solo sets. And we sometimes, you know, one of the many, many impromptu covers that we did live, you know, we did Wouldn't It Be Nice. And he really loved the fact that whatever Beach Boys song he could throw out there, like I could kind of follow on it, you know, because I know a lot of them. And, you know, they're not always the most obvious chord changes always. You know, sometimes they're a little bit hard to predict chord wise because some of them are piano songs. They're a little bit, they're not always the easiest things to play on the guitar, blah, blah, blah. Well, and this sounds like it was written the bad about like it's, <laughs> it sounds like this was written on piano. Yeah, it was written on piano. Okay. So he kind of like said like, well, yeah, you know, like it'd be cool to do like a Beach Boys song, but like, like an anti Beach Boys song. And I said, oh, okay. So, you know, I thought, well, what's, what would be the biggest sin in the Beach Boys world, which was turn my back on the sun. I thought that was like, just, that was the coolest thing that you go away from the sun. Sure. Like that's the antithesis of what the Beach Boys are about. And so that was going to be my anti Beach Boys song. Um, it actually, you know, turned out to be a really nice little, there's a lot to do with that little image and that little metaphor. So I worked it to death. Would it 
So just in terms of the details here, was it that you came in with the keyboard demo and then the group just came up with an arrangement like that? or, or? It was more like we got five minutes. I'm, I'm sure that the day before we recorded that tune, I stayed at Arden, sat down at the piano, which is right there in, in the studio, and you know messed around a little bit, wrote a few things down. And the next day, I'm sure we just started playing the music. I think I was writing the lyrics kind of as we went during the course of the day. Kind of had an idea that this should be the chorus and this should be that. And I, I guess I'll turn my back on this song. I kind of had that bit already. But the verses, I'm sure like five minutes before I made that vocal, I was tidying up those lyrics. But that's the beauty of working fast and the beauty of the unreflective way of making records that Alex required. You know, that you cannot fix anything. We're not going to spend... I mean, you know, I don't think a take later than take four was used on any song, even if I didn't know the song yet, whatever it was during the course of the week that when we were recording, the take would get to a certain point. Alex would be like, okay, that's it. Even takes that we kept where we said, okay, we nailed it. We know the song. This is great. Sounds wonderful. We got all our parts. Great. Good job, guys. Good night. It wasn't unusual to come back the next day and Alex would already be there and say, well, I've been listening back to those takes and uh, actually uh, three takes before the one we kept, you know, it's got a certain style to it. And I think we should, you know, 
go with that. That's a pretty goddamn good impression. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd be like, are you crazy? And like, I'm playing notes that I don't even, I don't even know the song yet. I'm like trying to watch your hands from across the room. And he wasn't crazy because now I listen to those takes and I'm like, well, it, it's not even that loose. I mean, like I was looking at the holes, but not seeing the greater picture, which was generally the holes were a very small component of the overall picture. Sure. I get nervous as I'm going through, you know, we're, we're playing live as a band and like, okay, you can screw up once mm-hmm. and you're still going through, but like by the time you screw up twice, then like, uh, maybe I should just stop. I, <laughs> if I keep going, we might keep the take something. <laughs> it's easy to get demoralized as you're, as you're doing when you're recording live in this way. Yeah, and you're you're focused on your part, so you think that when the song goes by that people will hear that. But, I mean, there's this is going off a little bit, but there's an isolated James Jamerson bass line on YouTube for uh, Sugar Pie, Honey Pie. Okay. And he's playing in the wrong key at one point. I mean, he's he's playing the wrong scale, that's for sure. And, you know, it's a million-selling song, and he's like, when you listen to the bass line, you're like, oh, weird that's not right and then you hear it in the mix and you go like holy shit that is this isn't a trick someone's not put some baseline that kind of sounds like it or they or melodyned it so we're all fooled he actually plays wrong notes on the take and it just felt fine because it all mushed together well i've tried to use the excuse of you know albums that i like stuff from the 60s I can make albums that sound that good right now myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even though those don't actually measure up in terms of the crispness and that, you know, as something that a lot more money was put into that came out in the last five years, mm-hmm. still, if those albums were good enough in the sixties and the, and you like to listen to them now, it should be okay to record in the way you're describing. And you know, these little mistakes get in or, or we don't spend that much time figuring out the vocal reverbs and <laughs> the rest of the details. It's true. I, you know, another baseline that comes to mind for all this, like Bill Wyman, you know, I think like there's some records where I'm listening, like, did he even like tune his bass? Did he even like, <laughs> like, what did he just show up and like start? I'll just play whatever, you know? And, like, That's just the charm. It's an out of tune D string. <laughs> and it's fantastic. It totally fits. Tuning, as I've said before, I've tried, you know, in the many productions that I do, I say, hey, long before we had auto tune, we had auto tune. It's called reverb. And <laughs> it is often true. You just put reverb on stuff and it suddenly fits, even if it's way out of tune. Or flange it. <laughs> Go an extra, an extra level. Add extra delay and a, just a big mess. Then you can have a very wide tonal range there. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like that even though you've used some of those fast techniques in making your productions, at least the stuff we talked about today, whether it be posies or your solo stuff, you're still going in digitally and fixing everything. Am I right? <laughs> You're still spending a lot of time polishing these and making them fairly flawless, it sounds like to me. That may be true for my cohort. I can't speak for his process, but actually, you know, I'm, I just try and play the part well. I don't over-tune my vocals. I'm not a very good editor because I'm impatient. I like the results, so I try and play pretty well. You know, on the Posies record, I'm not over-melodining stuff. I'm not over-editing stuff. I, you know, I just try and play it well the first time and concentrate. All the more interesting in that a lot of these tunes, you know, the writing and the recording are kind of one gesture. But, you know, they turned out pretty pro. But having that experience with Alex making that Big Star record, where long before I would have called it done, or if there are many points where I said, okay, I'm just going to go in and fix these things. And Alex would say, like, why? You know, like, why do you want to do that? You know, like, it's fine. And and, then... And he was right. It's natural to be kind of conscientious and not 
think of yourself not not oh, like um gild the lily on your performance and say oh i'm i'm so great or whatever modesty prevents you from doing that but if you're a good musician actually you should be able to kind of get it pretty good first take i mean i've worked with people like larry nectol who played on Soft Commands, you know, on my solo album from 2004. And, you know, he needed not more than one take. He had a listen, one-time listen, chart it, one take, done. Every time, because that's the way he always worked for 20 years. And if people can do that, you can build those kind of skills. It just... Sure. You don't have to. Recording as a solo artist, I can see, in my experience, Ed, there's less of a distinction between... The I'm just laying down a part to just have a part there so I'll remember it. And this is the final take. That a lot of times it'll be like, okay, I'm just putting the baseline down just so that I kind of know what it, but then I listen, like, eh, it sounds pretty much fine if I go in and digitally fix this stuff. So it becomes sort of a, is it worth my time to practice it up and get a good performance down? Or will it get me just about in the same place if I just do a little digital fixing with my half assed? <laughs> semi-improvisational attempt. I mean, do you, is there anything comparable with that for you? Or Well, or, or I can say one other way to think about it is, am I imagining the fact that it needs fixing? And that's what my experience with Alex, that's another way of looking at it. Maybe it's not actually half-assed. You know, maybe that is actually a good performance. And some of those things that are irking me now will be undetectable when I listen to this a year from now. You could also say, well, Ken, obviously you could be fooling yourself. You could decide to like something that's shit. And you're right. But I guess it's it's just about how much you trust yourself. I've become less of a second guesser. And I don't think that makes me pretentious. I think it just makes me more sane rather than my first impulse shouldn't be like, oh, this is bad. It's not good. Oh, I'm a terrible musician. I <laughs> That's neurotic, you know, but just saying... uh you know, like, hey, this is what it is. You know, I mean, this is this is a moment. That's not pretentious. So did some of that get applied? How, how do the two Disciplines albums work into that? I wasn't sure if that was even a band that you were, since you were just doing vocals on those, these are 2008 and 2011, mm -hmm. uh, if that was, they worked up songs that they would then bring in and you would just lay vocals on or whether it was a more organic, how was this, this setup of that? No, we worked together quite closely and I would be up in Norway all the time and we'd rehearse and jam. And in fact, most of the songs of the disciplines, Bjorn, the guitar player, the typical thing would be that he would have a, a pretty interesting basis for a song with a few lyrics or a bunch of lyrics and a hook and a chord progression. And I would take that and edit that you know, and add some lyrics, remove some lyrics, maybe suggest like, hey, let's move this part here and, you know, kind of tinker with it. And then from that, we would get a song. There are some cases where a song he would deliver would be so great that I would just sing it. And there are some cases where I might deliver a song that I wrote in the same mode and deliver that as a complete piece. But whatever the case may be, I didn't do this from from afar. You know, we, we went and we had a rehearsal place in Oslo and, and I would fly up there all the time and we'd work and make stuff and we recorded the first album in that rehearsal place actually and we played a lot and it was a real band for that three-year run well so what about this other project that i was listening to on your spotify channel here there is a newman album or an ep this by fear high love yeah was that somebody that you were producing or did they send it to you and you added parts remotely or how did this one work that one paco the singer of the band just invited me to come and record with them they had he had the songs written they had them arranged we actually recorded that ep in a weekend just working super fast 
Yeah. I mean, the string stuff was added later, but all the band stuff was done all in one go and vocals and everything. And basically, they in this little village, not far from Mercia in Spain, where they, they originally come from, they built this crazy ass like classical music auditorium. And of course, most of the time, it's not doing anything. So we set up on this. It's a big, big stage in a big, big hall, and it's very reverberant. And so day one was mostly tracking drums. And I was just kind of listening. I was like up in the like the sound booth where the live sound engineer would normally be mixing a live concert. I would be up there just kind of like watching from afar, taking notes. And then, you know, I just spent basically the second day just furiously overdubbing on their stuff. So I didn't really write any of those lyrics or anything like that. The only thing I added from a lyrical point of view was there's like an expository moment in French that I add to one of the songs. But other than that, I just added like harmonies. I would do a guitar part for each song, a keyboard part for each song, and a tambourine for each song. I can see why they would get you. This The title track is kind of the best big starish thing to come out that I've heard in, in quite a while. And I actually see that that song, maybe this is bad news to you, on your Spotify channel has way more than twice as much many downloads as any of the other songs they're so popular in spain i mean they're they're a great success story i mean i played on their last album as well we toured together sometimes you know we did a tour opening for the posies and where like so the posies played and then newman and i also played opening and then i toured with them without the posies where i just came along and we did this uh you know rolling thunder review of playing my songs and their songs and and mm -hmm. toured around spain doing that and you know we we're playing clubs and they were full and then i came back and they just kept touring and touring and touring and and they made that video and it and it did really well for the song hell and we have some good friends on the radio there too so they got some good radio play and so i came back a couple of years ago when the new album came out and we played in madrid and it's like 2000 people coming to the show I mean, I was like, whoa, guys, you guys have been working hard. This is amazing. You know, like, and they, they're just one of those bands that just would not quit. I mean, they just toured to 40 people for like four years. And then all of a sudden it was 400. And then all of a sudden it was 2000. And it's awesome. So we'll link folks to some of that and just to all the uh, bits of the many, many other collaborations that you've had that we don't have time to talk about. But let's finish with one of them, one of your most recent things from the record, 2015, credited to Holly and Ken. So it's Holly Munoz. The song is Whatever Hell. So let's say a little about this, that this is a Willie Nelson tribute album, sort of, but not really. What it really is, is an opera about the characters from the song, Doesn't It Remind You of Something, which is a kind of country song that's on Danzig in the Moonlight, my the solo album we've been talking about earlier tonight. So that song has these, it's a male-female duet on the album. And these two characters struck me as worthy of further exploration. So this album, the record, is an exploration of their life trajectory from the earliest years to their untimely demise and all the things that happen. And that, you know, they're a couple and they start out kind of innocent and then they get into like doing drugs, just partying and having fun. And then that leads to like, getting a little bit too much caught up in it and then dealing a little bit and then it all kind of goes to, you know, to a predictable end, this kind of thing. And what made you match that with the Redheaded Stranger album? From Willie. The thing is that that album is a concept album as well. 
And it was Holly who proposed this because that's an album that's like one of her favorite albums from growing up. And she said, well, this album is, you know, this is just one of my favorite albums of all time, but we should take that same, if we're going to make a concept record, we should marry it to the structure of the Redheaded Stranger because the Redheaded Stranger is kind of neat because um, it has recurring themes. It tells a story, but in, in, in certain impressions and those impressions recur, like there's themes that come back around and instrumental bits that come back around. And we took that exact same structure as many instrumentals as Willie has on that album will use it's 14 songs like Willie's album there's X amount of repeating themes like on Willie's album and we just used his structure where did Edelweiss come in here well Edelweiss is another one of Holly's favorite songs and that's supposed to be you know when the female character is practically ODing on the floor somewhere she kind of has a moment where she like reaches back into her childhood and remembers her mom and, and, you know, all the easy times of her life. And that's kind of her mom coming back. And so it's like a song within a song. It's a song within a song. It's all, it's all meta. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh gosh. So yeah. Thank you. Thanks for um, having me. Thanks for putting up with me and my barking dogs and <laughs> the crazy kids and all the stuff that was happening in the background. All right. So here it is. Uh, whatever hell off that record, the record. All right. <laughs> Whatever hell you've been going through Whoever's arms you've been running to Wherever it is you don't belong Whenever you want to stop being gone Forging those checks in my Racking up debts, no intention to pay Cooking up lines and giving away A taste of the good that's left in you Darling, it ain't all about you Waiting on tables Ain't my dream come true I'll be out getting hammered Cause I'm totally screwed Yeah, I know I'm totally screwed Whatever hell you've been going through Whoever's arms you've been running to your ass off the floor Anyway, you just go back for more and more Isn't it rich that we'd rather be poor But that's how How I was raised You made it sound like you gave me Baby, I was born to roam 
Thanks again to Ken Stringfellow. You can again find out more about his various projects at kenstringfellow.com, also theposies.net. And I'm sure that is not the last we'll hear of Big Star on this podcast. And some kind of big news for me, Ken's description of Alex Chilton's attitude towards Big Star, this band that is so revered by music geeks, inspired me to write a song that is a slight stylistic tribute to Big Star. And then Ken actually sang the harmony part on it. So I'm going to have some version of that up soon at marklint.com. I'm sure it will be further tinkered with before it receives a proper release. But go look for that within a week of this episode coming out. We have also performed the song live with my current live thing. If you go to the Facebook page for Mark Lint's Dry Folk, you can see the video of the most current gig, which nestled in there in the middle, is that song. Obviously not with Ken on it. You also probably noticed that we had an extra song that we normally only talk about three songs, and we talked about four songs here. It's just that Ken's output varies so widely. I know we had that issue also with Jonathan Sagal, but in his case, the songs that I wanted to talk about were so long, I certainly wasn't going to add an extra one just to show more of the stylistic range. But I'm not making a habit of this. I have not done this on the subsequent episodes, which I'm not going to list here. You can look at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash upcoming. I will keep an updated list there, or I often post updates on the Nakedly Examined Music Facebook page. So go like that, go pay attention to that. You can even get all the episodes linked right to that page. But of course, you should also visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. The blog post corresponding to this episode will include links to some of the things that we talked about in this discussion, some of Ken's various projects. You can hear more posies, more Big Star, some of him with REM. But we've got a lot of awesome upcoming folks as I take advantage of the networking of the various guests or the credibility. And having some of these guests on has gotten me to get yet less accessible guests. This doesn't mean that I'm going to ignore the various unknown geniuses. And by all means, if you are a listener, if you have put out a bunch of albums and would like to talk about them with me, please email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I also welcome from every single listener your suggestions on who I should reach out to, what genres I've been neglecting, what you want to hear more of. I will take down all of your suggestions and seriously consider them as time permits. And until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Linkmeyer signing off. Music.